Good morning. I, <clears throat> I kind of have to do this because I was challenged uh, to do this by a group of friends. I started doing some sign language classes uh, about a week or two back. So they said, Pastor, one of the things you have to do when you see uh, deaf, dumb people is you must introduce yourself and so that they remember. So, my name is spelt R O N. I'm not going to spell the full name, <laughs> it's a bit too long. R O N. My sign name is Pastor Ron the Shining One. Now, that last bit was introduced to me today by my friends here. Uh, I said, normally they call me Pastor Ron. They said, no, you must add this, this bit here. That's how we know you. Uh, I like to interpret it in different ways. Anyway, that's a short introduction if you don't yet know me. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, and, uh, you know, it fills my heart with love to see you. So that's a, another sign that I can give to you. You might want to turn to your partner and, and show them this. This is the universal sign, uh, I love you. So when you point to someone, make sure you point it the one you love. La. Don't show it to somebody else, you know. I, okay, love, L, I, L, and Y. So you just point it three, I love you. So I love you all. Uh, it's good to be back here and to see you all. Go back, you can go and point to your children and tell them what that is. Let me begin with a time of prayer. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, your word is true and your word illumines our hearts, Lord. We come to you seeking you, asking that you speak to us, Lord, through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. So may the words of my mouth, meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm told that this uh, passage that was assigned to me, 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 to 25, is in a continuation of several passages that you have read. And one of the key themes we have here is that David, who is uh, brought up uh, and anointed by Samuel, uh, is anointed at a very young age. Amongst all his brothers, he was the runt, the youngest in his family, so much so that they had forgotten about him. But when finally Samuel asked, is there anyone else? He said, yeah, there is one more. He's busy taking care of the sheep. Call him. And so while they're there, busy twiddling their fingers, David comes and God tells him, arise, this is the one. And they anoint him. And he is anointed king in place of Saul, who is king at that time. But the period from then till the time when David finally becomes a king and enters into his final role is a period of maybe 15 years. Because he's about 30 by the time he becomes king at this point in the passage. And when he was anointed, he was probably a teen, maybe between 15 to 20 years. So from the moment he is said to be king, as a teenage young shepherd boy, to the time when he finally comes into the final fulfillment is a long period of time. 
But then the Lord finally blesses him and we find in this particular passage, 2 Samuel 5, verse 6 to 25, instances of where God specifically blesses him in response to a right pattern of response to him. So we want to go into this text and have a look and see what is it so special about David or what is it about David that is ordinary and normal or even downright broken and yet God still uses him. Now, the text we have has this particular uh, picture. We find in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, just before that, a statement that says, All the tribes came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. Now, if at all uh, we want to remember the imagery that is given to us, is these words, you led the people Israel, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. Verse 2, in the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. In this imagery that we see is a shepherd who is now a mighty general in the time of Saul who is leading the armies. And why is this shepherd imagery quite interesting? Well, in the Middle East, particularly in the time of Israel and still to some extent now, the shepherd is in front and the sheep follow. You, you search for this and you can differentiate between uh, other modern-day shepherding and traditional shepherding in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East shepherding, the shepherd is in front, the sheep follow. They lead. They listen to the voice of the shepherd who whistles, who calls, and they follow. And so this imagery of leadership is consistent even now Whenever we talk about how do Christians understand leadership, it is essentially the picture of a shepherd. So take away all ideas of the power CEO, the managing director, the founder director, whatever you want to call it, and remove that image that you have and replace that with a shepherd. One who is familiar with the wilderness, who confronts wild beasts and animals, whose sheep know his voice and who will follow. The text continues. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. This is verse 6. So I hope you have your Bibles open with you. Uh, we will go through this a little bit and I want to unpack that before I bring some of the application points. 2 Samuel 5 verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. Who are the Jebusites? The Jebusites are some of the people who, while Moses was wandering in the wilderness together with the people, was told, when you enter into this promised land, these are some of the people who are in there and you are to obliterate them. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, uh, but that is in essence the message. Get rid of these people. And so in all of this, when they entered into the promised land, Joshua leading the people with the children of Israel following, 
they kind of push out everyone, but they fail to basically do the very thing that God had asked them to do. And the moment when David comes into uh, this kingship, when they come before him and ask him, you be the prince, the ruler over our people, he goes to Israel, which is a very central, uh, he goes to Jerusalem, which is the very central location because it borders the north and the south of Israel and Judah. He then attacks the Jebusites. And after many years of having failed to dislodge the Jebusites, he successfully gets rid of them. Now, when you read this literature, this text that is given to us, there's a bit of irony and sarcasm. So you need to read it with a, a particular lens. It says there, The Jebusite said to David, You will not get in here, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. So as soon as he took over this place, which he now called the fortress of Zion, a very promised mythical place that is in the prophecies and in the imaginings of the people, he now gives it his own name. This shall be the city of David, my city. But note the sarcasm there. David cannot get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. Our weakest people are able to fend you off. In other words, the fortress is so strong, we don't really need to man it. Understanding it is important to see what happens afterward when David responds. Verse 8, on that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft, which if you go on an Israel tour right now, they say it's called the Warren shaft under Jerusalem, uh, to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. Now what David is doing is, you slap me with an insult, I will insult you back. Since you say it only takes the lame and blind, then you all lame and blind people, ordinary people, are all lame and blind because I have conquered you. That's how it was meant to be read. And that's why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. Not referring to physically blind and lame, but the Jebusite people would never enter into this place. Verse 9. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. So twice it is mentioned, this city of David. He built up the area around it and from the terraces inward and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Ah, need help to move to the next. Ah, yes. And so I want to come to this first point uh, in this particular message. David took up residence in the fortress, called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. And there is a statement. He became more and more powerful or greater uh, because the Lord God Almighty was with him. 
Now, in various texts, if you look at the NIV, the NRSV, the ESV, that translation is slightly different. Some say, uh, the Lord God Sabaoth. Uh, some say, the Lord God, the Lord of the host of heaven's armies. Or uh, the Lord of uh, Sabaoth. In the actual Hebrew, you find that it is the Lord uh, Yahweh Elohe Savaoth. The meaning being Yahweh, the I am that I am, Elohe, God, of the host of God's armies. Ergo, Almighty God. But the point here is that God is with him. God is present with him. His power is a result of God being with him. It's a short sentence, as is many of these particular statements, but it is profound in the literature because here is one who is a king, who is great and powerful, not because he is a great king, but because his God is with him. The focus therefore, is not on his greatness as a king, but his focus is on the greatness of the God that is present with him. Ironically, when I was reading this passage in preparation for this passage, at Wesley Penang, we are going through the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, there is a blessedness because Jesus, when he preaches the gospel, he goes up the mountain like Moses and he gives the commandments or the beatitudes to the people, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, i.e., blessed are those whose dependence spiritually is on God, for theirs is the kingdom of God, is, present tense, the kingdom of God. And those blessedness statements are, in a way, a reflection of what God through Jesus, was beginning to teach a new thing to the people. Blessed are you. Why? Because to you belong the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is where there is a king, there is a boundary, there are citizens, and there is a presence of the one who is called the king. And that is why when Jesus went out and began to preach the gospel, it says there, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. At hand. What's, what's new about that? It's not that the Jews didn't understand that there is a king and that there is a kingdom. What's new about this is that the kingdom of God is at hand, is present, is here now. And so when David comes into uh, his kingship, it is in a way reminding the people that as he enters this kingship, God is present with him. He is Yahweh Elohim Savaoth, and he was with him. That is the Old Testament understanding. We understand it now as Emmanuel, God with us in us, around us, for us, above us, working through us, working for us. And in all of this, with us-ness, 
is the blessedness that David encountered. Do we actually internalize this whole thought? I say this because conceptually, mentally, yes, we kind of know, yeah, Emmanuel, God with us, we're saying all this, but do we exercise it in the same way that David actually internalized it and lived it and worked it out? That God was with him. Yahweh, Elohe, Savaoth. So I would like to present to you that an application point for this particular statement is as much as David had Yahweh, Elohe, Savaoth with him, we have God present with us in every instant of every moment in us. Do we internalize this and do we act out on this? And how do we look at the example of David as one for us to follow? Which brings me to my second point. David, because he had this presence of God with him, exercised a relationship with him, a particularly right relationship which is very simple but profoundly mysterious in our ability to follow you will see there a pattern. And I'm going to read this. Uh, you, you see the pattern being mirrored every once in a while. Uh, verse 11, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with Sedelog. So David found favor with the people around him. And the moment that, uh, let me read that, that David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel, the moment Aram, Hiram built this palace for him. So whilst David was operating in this sense of, yeah, I had a promise when I was a young man, this uh, old grey prophet came and laid hand and poured oil on me and said, you are the anointed one. Uh, and God's covenant is with you and you will be king over all of Israel. He kind of knew that promise, but the moment when he finally realized that God had established him as king was when Hiram did this act of grace for him, built him the palace and said, you are now the king in this palace. Verse 13, after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. And then he gave the names. Now I thought I'd mention this because biblical narrative tells us the story. It doesn't moralize it, but it is left up to us to decide, is this good or is this bad? It doesn't say that God says this was a good thing. But he makes a statement there. Now, after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. Simple statement of fact in the story. But for one who discerns it, he realizes this is in a way a condemnation of him. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, it says there, a commandment of God to the people, Moses and those following the king shall not have many wives, for they will be a distraction to him and will cause him to stray. And he should not be one who accumulates wealth. 
uh, we kind of guess that David wasn't really into the wealth thing. Solomon was. But David also had many wives and many children. And later on in 2 Samuel and in the story of Kings, we see as part of the narrative rather than a specific uh, prescriptive injunction against him that this was a failure. Some people ask, how is it that David has so many wives and concubines? Well, the king at that time and in ancient Near East practice, it was common for them to basically have political diplomatic alliances and the way to seal the alliance was to get married to the other king because of course you won't go to war with that king because your wife is now your family. That was the idea behind it. But it was the beginning of the path of David's failing. Why am I emphasizing this? To make the point, David, a man after God's own heart, was not perfect. We know he had adulterous affairs. We know that he also had murderous thoughts and conspired and actually successfully got rid of his uh, adulterous wife's actual husband who was more loyal. Yet in spite of all this, God continues to work through this man. Why? And it might be because he demonstrated this right relationship. What is this right relationship? Verse 17, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him, but David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now, who are these Philistines? Uh, when you went through the passages in, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you might have heard this interaction that David was at one point allied with the Philistines when he was running away from Saul. And so the Philistines maybe were very upset with him because they might see it as a, as a form of treason or betrayal. You were once with us, now you are opposed against us. And so the Philistines are the ones who cari pasal. They see him as a threat. They come after him. It's not as if David say, now my next conquest is going to be after these Philistines. It's a way of them to document uh, David did not break trust. They were the one who conspired to come after him. And this is therefore his response. David heard about it, went down to the stronghold. Verse 18, now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So... David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? Uh, next slide. Yes. So David inquired of the Lord is the pattern that we're about to see repeated again and again. David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? And the Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. And next, so David did as the Lord commanded him. Now, this is the very final statement at the end in verse 25. But every time we see this, David went to, uh, the Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal Perazim. Baal Perazim is Hebrew for the Lord breaks forth or the waters are breaking forth as if the dam is overflowing. There he defeated them and he said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out. The Philistines 
abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. Again, a narrative statement of fact. But should David have actually been taking all these idols and all that stuff? Was he adding this to his store of gods that he has conquered to make this a trap? And later on, we find that the Israelites begin to worship these idols because they admire all these other enemies around them who are strong and powerful rather than destroying these idols and totally turning them into dust. Uh, he brings them in. Verse 22, once more the Philistines came out, spread out in the valley of Rephraim. So David inquired of the Lord. He answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. And as soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him and he struck him down and, they, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. That's a distance of about 25 miles. He's chasing them down and striking them down. So this pattern, again and again and again, David inquires of the Lord, the Lord answers him, and in some ways, very specifically, don't go directly, go around the popa tree, wait for this shaking of the branches, and when you hear it, then I'm already attacking, go and attack. Now, I wish, I wish that the instructions of God were so audible. But I fear that if I were to do this, I would abuse it. Oh Lord, if I'm going to Gurney Plaza to go, where shall I park? <laughs> or go up to the third floor, <laughs> turn left there, you will find it. We, we become very petty. And we expect God to answer us and, and therefore it, it is no longer a situation that He is God. I become the very God. But David exercises his relationship. He is powerful not because he is great and mighty and courageous. He is powerful and mighty because God is with him. And through all the relationship and all the failures of David, he comes back to God and says, I am wretched I'm a sinful man, but do not cast me away. In all his brokenness, he clings to God. So he demonstrates this pattern. He consults the Lord's will in all matters of great importance and maybe even on minor things. And I want to ask this question of us. We know this. Do we internalize this? Do we make it a reality that in everything that we're doing, particularly of great significance to us, that we are asking the Lord, Lord, what is your will in this? How do we respond to this? And the consulting of God's will is not so much to tell God, God, I want you to do this. In the same way that Mary went up to Jesus, she didn't say, go and make more wine. Or go and sort this thing out. She said, there is no more wine. <laughs> blink, blink. What will you do, Lord? <laughs> and then he does a miracle that totally staggers everyone but confuses everyone. Go get all these vessels. Go fill it up. Go do this. 
Make a fool of yourself to some extent, but do this. We also remember Joshua when he was going against Jericho, saying, go circle around Joshua, worship me, have your music team in front there, your Levites and priests, go do all these things. Get insulted, get scolded, get ridiculed, but do these things. It may not make sense to us, but the important thing is, they were very clear that this is what God said. So the first instance is, are we consulting God's will? And one of the great condemnations of the church is that many of the churches are filled with very intelligent, highly capable, very strategic thinkers that have in a way dispensed with the need for dependence on God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, i.e. those who are utterly dependent on God, who look to consult the Lord to ask, what should we do? It is not to say that we are so bodo and so stupid that we can't figure things out. But it is a recognition that His voice comes first and we concur and we follow. So how do we inquire? How do we train our children to inquire of the Lord? Several ways. We inquire through prayer. We inquire through meditation. We inquire through searching the scripture and a seeking, an intentional seeking of Him. Too often we find this problem. We are working like crazy, we're hammering against and we're banging our head against the wall and finally after we're so hurt and bruised, someone says, you got to pray and ask God not what He wants to do. And, oh yeah, for God lah. Let's pray. And, and coincidences of coincidences, things occur within 24 hours. And many of us have encountered that mystery, but at times have forgotten these miracles along the way. That's why it's a good thing at times to journal it and to look back in your journals and say, I was stuck in this point. I know personally for myself a number of times when I hit a wall and I prayed and the answer came pretty much within an hour, within 24 hours. And it's only on hindsight when I look back, Lord, I was in this dilemma, great problem, it's only when I put my dependence on you because I finally found out I got no other option. That, my friends, is not the right way. You got no other option, then only you look to God. <laughs> Which is what David is demonstrating. His first option is, God, shall we do this? What shall we do? Shall I go this far? Other kings basically inquired of their wise men and the wise men said, you, O king, have decided wisely. We will now invoke the gods to support your plan. The gods are a means for them to do what they want to do. So the greater God, you go figure. How do we, having inquired of God, do the next important thing? which is to discern God's answer and comply with His direction. This is to me the great mystery of the current age. How do we discern God's answer? 
Incidentally, if I'm not mistaken, this is like the eighth week of Epiphany. Why the term Epiphany? An Epiphany is when you encounter God. When Jesus was baptized and he came out from the water, an Epiphany occurred. The clouds opened up, heaven was you know, kind of like opened, uh, the Spirit of God descended like an angel, and the voice of God the Father spoke, this is my Son, whom I love, and in Him I am well pleased. Epiphanies, direct, real revelations of God speaking to us in a reality. And for some people, God bless them, they get these epiphanies. They get dreams, they get visions, they get very clear, discerning voices, and they find it hard to explain it to someone. It's also made difficult because you have some people who come alongside like every moment, like, oh, I was translated into the seventh heaven, the ninth heaven. I was taken up to this point and the voice of God said this to me and the angel said this to me and then we're scratching our head. Is this really it? And the only way to discern this is to discern. Wait, ask, seek, test. And so I normally have a rule of thumb. We hear God when we have a combination or several things that are confirming, and this is what we call a process of discernment, which, by the way, I am really happy to hear that Trinity LCC had a discernment process recently. Leaders sat down together, dreamed, dreamed, cast visions, speak their hearts out, test each other's thoughts and turn to Scripture and says, what is the Lord saying to us in this season? We discern God's answers when we hear people dream dreams, see visions, when circumstances seem to fall into place. I, for one, am always very amused by God's circumstances. I cannot dispute this that in no many occasions when I am utterly unprepared, He has actually been preparing it before I was even born. I ask myself, why did I go through this in my work life? And I find now that I'm being channeled into directions where the skills that I had learned, which I thought were utterly useless, God is using. I happen to be right now... Uh, put in charge of taking care of the Orang Asli uh, villages. My Bahasa is helping me tremendously. And I always used to be wondering, why am I put up in, a, in Penang, in a Hokkien church? <laughs> People talking to me in Mandarin when my gifting is more in BM or English. Or and I'm being applying all these things. I used to wonder, why did you send me through this consultancy route? And I realized, yeah, you need a strategic plan in order to figure out how to bring together 55 villages, 70 staff, 5,000 people who are stuck in the middle of a jungle, who do not understand the complexities of the structures that you want. And I realized all this time, God could, you know, I personally or none of the bishops could have figured out this is the plan. It all occurs because the circumstances have fallen in place. And Bishop Joshua just as much said, so Ron, we come to this time when you are available to do this work 
and Bishop Emeritus Hua Yung is coming here and coming to do this task force and so many things are coming into alignment. Now why am I mentioning the Bishop? Because the other way in which we find these promptings or God speaking is when we hear the counsel of godly, wise friends whom we entrust and hope are praying. And so when the leaders in the LCC come together as leaders and, and they start sharing, you know, I feel that this is a need that God has said to me and these are some situations I've seen. Someone else says, hey, you know, funny you mentioned that huh? because that's also been in my prayer list and this is scripture I got on that. And they, and they start seeing a few things fall into place. Circumstances, counsel of godly people, prayer. Great indeed is an LCC or leadership meeting or even any corporate meeting where in the midst of great conflict where people are confronting each other, accusing each other, someone calls a break. Time out. I think we need to calm down and pray and inquire of the Lord. And you'd be surprised the number of times when, when LCC meetings actually do that or when leadership teams actually do that, the concurrence of how people suddenly come about and say, you know, after that 5-10 minutes of a stop and asking God, I feel I need to apologize. I've said this out of turn. I've assessed what I said and what led to this. And this was not right. And suddenly, everybody wants to apologize for the very thing and they can't figure out what were they arguing about. But that's a mystery of how God works. Through dreams, through visions, through circumstances, through promptings of the Holy Spirit. This is all mystery. I can't explain to you, here's the formula. All I can say is the principle is you inquire of the Lord, you therefore wait for an answer. Nicky Gumbel, in his daily readings, had one podcast where he shared this. Imagine you went to see your doctor, you sprained your back, and you went to see the doctor and said, Doc, this morning I woke up, I had this extreme pain, somewhere on the third thing. I couldn't get up, I couldn't turn, uh, you know, it's, it's causing me tremendous pain, I'm crawling out of the bed and all that stuff. And as soon as he finishes, and it's about, as the doctor is about to say something, he says, thank you very much for listening to me, I'm going off now. That is a pattern, as Nikki Gumbo says it, of prayer that we sometimes have. We lift up all these petitions in a very functional manner. Lord, I need my parking spot. <laughs> Go sort it out. Lord, I have this problem, I have this, you know, I don't know what to do about it, I'm just leaving this with you. We have to wait and discern and answer. Even if it takes years, like David, more than 15 years, discerning, you've called me to be king, but how will this be? Or imagine Abraham, you told me my children will be as countless as the stars, but I've only got one son. Or even at that time, I don't even have a son. Do we lose patience and say, I want to do and try it differently? How do we discern God's answer? If I'm asking God and inquiring of Him, am I taking the time 
to discern His answer. Meditation is one of that. Here's a modern-day prophecy. C.S. Lewis, in his letter, uh, the, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, some of you, if you've not read this, maybe you should read it or ask your children would they like to read it. It's a book written in the 1930s or 40s by C.S. Lewis, and it is a, an apologetic of how do we explain good through the examination of evil. So the Screwtape Letters is about the senior devil called Screwtape, who has a nephew by the name of Wormwood. And Wormwood's role is to try and trip up this guy called the Patient, who is a British uh, UK guy who is an ordinary Joe. So Wormwood goes to Screwtape and says, what exactly is our plan of action? What am I supposed to do? And Screwtape's answer is, we fill this world with so much noise that the patient is unable to hear his maker's voice. That's a modern-day prophet. Because when you look at the problem of the current age, there is so much noise <laughs> in our world. And I have to admit, it's something I have to struggle with as well. Consistently, my wife and others have to remind me, get off the phone. Stop answering all these WhatsApp messages. You need to take a break. You need to talk to God, maybe. Get off watching all your stream of uh, documentaries and all that stuff and justifying what you do. The amount of noise that is going on prevents us from hearing God's answer. And it may be that the way to be more productive is to be less. Modern terms, we say more, less is more. You need to take a break. You need to wait and listen. Third one, how do we comply with the Lord's direction? And thankfully, in this case, uh, the answer is clear. It is being spit specifically to him. Go do this. Go ahead. Fight the war. Go and run this. Go around the poplar trees. Listen for these situations. But how about us? Not all of us hear very clearly this distinct audible voice. Sometimes, for me, it is the voice of my children talking to me. It's as if God is using them to speak to me. Too often, it is actually speaking through my wife. And my tendency sometimes is to switch off. Some of you know. And I have to fight and say, no, 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 no. I have to listen even if at times my ego is being battered and bruised. It is a self. It's an act of yielding and surrender. I wanted to put here, we obey with courage. And I want to say this, no amount of wisdom and no amount of scriptural knowledge and knowing what God says is of any use at all without the courage to actually do it. We can have all the answers, 
but then expect someone else to do it. We can have all this, the church should be doing this, we should be doing that. You are the church. So are you going to have the courage and the humility to do it? I have found in ministry, it takes courage. And the greatest courage is in a way to lose yourself and your ego and your sense of identity to where God is leading you to. It requires self-control. It requires humility. The willingness to basically be put down. And I find examples of this. You know, when, uh, when Hiram had built the palace for David, David recognizes here. Uh, let me read it to you. David knew, verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. It takes a huge amount of humility on David's part to realize all these things are happening not because he is fantastically great and courageous, but because his God is great and his God is doing this for his people, Israel. And so this path of asking God, discerning and waiting and being patient in waiting for his answer, requires at the end of this him tremendous amount of courage and I like this new favourite word, yield. You know, you see, you watch all these new movies nowadays, they go back into period movies like the knights are fighting and in the end the guy is about to die, he says, will you yield? Will you surrender? Because the honest truth is all our great battles are not with the enemies that we think about. Ultimately, our great battles are with God. God, why you put Ephraim to go and torture me? God, why is this happening to me? God, it's all your fault. You are sovereign, you are God. Why you let this happen? I have found a reminder recently about the focus of prayer. Many years ago, I sat down with a good friend who had lost loved ones, a whole string of them. And I said to her, How do you, are you still able to pray nowadays? And I teared a bit and she said, Yes, I still do. But prayer to me is not me sitting down asking God, God do this, God do that, God change this, God do that. Prayer to me is me yielding to what God has already decided He will do. It is a coming into alignment with the reality of what has happened in her life. The loss of her loved ones, the circumstances that she is in. Now I heard that almost 20 years ago and I understood then that prayer is not so much a God give me this, a God do this, a God do that. It was a way for me to pray and say, Lord, what is your will? Let me come into alignment to it. And I was recently reminded just last year through a Hebrew lesson. The Hebrew word for prayer is actually a verb. A verb that has a meaning to come into alignment. 
And so maybe our prayers and all this right relationship is in alignment to what God is asking us to do. Will you yield to comply with the Lord's direction, knowing that it is a denying of yourself, knowing that it is a surrendering of your pride into humble submission, knowing that it means exercising self-patience, control, love, overflowing, all the characteristics of Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, all these things. Will you take on the pattern of David who is in the kingdom, blessed? So it's not so much our circumstances that make us blessed, but the reality that God is with us. And that through this with usness, He is shaping us into this right alignment and relationship with Him. And when we obey, God will fulfill all these blessings in His right, perfect time. I put there a text reference as well. 1 Samuel 23, 2, 4, chapter 30, verse 8, 2 Samuel 1, all these instances you will see David says, David inquired of the Lord. And then he heard what the Lord said and he did it. So simple, so mysterious, and it is the very rhythm of life that we are called into in order to abide in God's blessedness. Let me conclude. I'd like you to know and remember that you are citizens of God's kingdom. Our God and King is with us. He is Emmanuel. Blessed are those in the kingdom of God. Theirs is and theirs will be the kingdom of God. Would you be inquiring of God and listening for His answer, ready to respond courageously in God's timing? And will you do as the Lord commands you in His Word, revealed will in Christ Jesus, the living Word of God? I mentioned there all these ways in which we discern God. The number one descriptor of God's general and specific revelation of His will is His Scriptures. So if ever in doubt, you don't know what God is saying, go back to Scripture. And if at any time the very thing that you want to do is contrary to what Scripture would have us do, read again, ask again, get people's counsel. You need to discern together. Let us pray. Oh Lord, will you guide us in the truth that leads us into your everlasting plan? Remind us again and again, O oh Lord, that we are with you and you are with us, the ever-present God. Transform us, O oh Lord, into your likeness and help us to discern rightly and pause to remove the noise that is within us, to exercise self-control and patience and to deny ourselves and follow you, O oh Lord.
We ask and pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. I have three application questions. Uh, so you go back, talk with the family, talk in your small groups or maybe over lunch. What is your prayer life like? Uh, do you slow down to wait for God to answer? Slow down. Uh, this coming week, I'm traveling away on a silent retreat with my wife. The whole point of it is for us to slow down, uh, to set aside things, maybe switch off my phone. Okay, la, not maybe, have to switch off my phone la, uh, and hear God. Have you, after inquiring of the Lord and discerning an answer, wrestled to do what the Lord said? What held you back? What propelled you forward? Have an honest conversation with each other and sometimes it requires friends uh, to counsel us, to encourage us to go forward or to lead the way. And lastly, this is a question for the children. Uh, King David was powerful because God Almighty was with him. He often spoke to, asked God for help and did what God told him to do. Do you know how to speak to God and to get an answer or a word from God? And I gave two clues, two emoticons. So go back to, with your children, have a chat with them, teach them how to inquire of the Lord and to wait for an answer and to seek that answer out in the places that it is available to. I commend this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, may I invite you to stand for the invitation to the Lord's table. That even as we come before the Lord at the Lord's Supper, we remember His spiritual blessings for us, one of them being what He did on the cross for us. And so Christ our Lord invites to His table all who love Him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. You may be seated. And let us pray this prayer of confession and pardon together. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's take some moments to come before the Lord in quiet confession and repentance.
Did you hear the good news? Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and that proves God's love towards us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. We invite us to just stand to our feet, turn to somebody next to you, and just offer them a piece of the Lord, a sign of God's peace, reconciliation, and love to one another. God's peace be with you. As forgiven and reconciled people, let us offer ourselves and our gifts to God. The collection for the Holy Communion offering will be collected now. Those who wish to contribute online are as encouraged. Please do contribute to the Maybank account number on the screen. Those who wish to give their gifts in cash, uh, please make your way down the centre aisle and go back through the sites. Okay, please come. Just a, a little reminder that the communion offering for February will go to Malaysian Care. That's where your money will be going. Friends, we come to the portion of the great thanksgiving, and great thanksgivings are meaningless if they are not coming from our heart. So will you take a moment to remember in this past few days or moments, what are you thankful to the Lord for, and will you offer up your grateful thanks to Him? Will you therefore respond accordingly? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. 
by the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honour and glory is yours, Almighty Father, both now and forevermore. Amen. Dear friends, with the confidence of the children of God, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Friends, the Lord's table is uh, open. The only condition for coming to partake is that you have been baptized and repented of your sins. Uh, those who have been baptized as infants are also welcome to come and partake as a symbol of the uh, family covenant that we're in together. Uh, would you follow the directions of the ushers? Come down the center aisle and return through the side aisles. Hang on to your elements. We will partake together. Please come.
We peel back the first transparent layer and we partake the bread together. The body of Jesus given for you, take, eat, remember Christ who died for you. Amen. We open the foil. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Drink and be thankful. Amen. Do hang on to your containers and dispose them in the bins on your way out. as how we have looked at how the Lord blessed David. May I invite you to stand and as we sing this song, may it be a declaration that we seek the Lord's blessings for ourselves and for one another.
and sisters go forth from here with the name of God on you so that those who encounter you from whom life is lonely and desperate will see in you the spirit of God the presence of God that you grow mighty and powerful for the Lord your God is with you the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you Lord, turn his face towards you and grant you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. You may be seated. We want to thank you for joining us in our worship service this morning.